0: Chapter Two of Travels in Alaska. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by John Dennison. Travels in Alaska by John Muir. Chapter Two. Alexander Archipelago and the Home I Found in Alaska. To the lover of pure wildness, Alaska is one of the most wonderful countries in the world. No excursion that I know of may be made into any other American wilderness, where so marvelous an abundance of noble, newborn scenery is so charmingly brought to view as on the trip through the Alexander Archipelago to Fort Wrangell and Sitka. Gazing from the deck of the steamer, one is borne smoothly over calm blue waters, through the midst of countless forest-clad islands the ordinary discomforts of a sea voyage are not felt for nearly all the whole long way is on inland waters that are about as waveless as rivers and lakes so numerous are the islands that they seem to have been sown broadcast long tapering vistas between the largest of them open in every direction day after day in the fine weather we enjoyed we seemed to float in true fairyland each succeeding view seeming more and more beautiful the one we chanced to have before us the most surprisingly beautiful of all. Never before this had I been embosomed in scenery so hopelessly beyond description. To sketch picturesque bits, definitely bounded, is comparatively easy. A lake in the woods, a glacier meadow, or a cascade in its dell, or even a grand master view of lakes beheld from some commanding outlook after climbing from height to height above the forest's, these may be attempted, and more or less, telling pictures made of them, but in these coast landscapes there is such indefinite, on-leading expansiveness, such a multitude of features without apparent redundance, their lines graduating delicately into one another in endless succession, while the whole is so fine, so tender, so ethereal, that all penwork seems hopelessly unavailing. Tracing shiny ways through fjord and sound, past forests and waterfalls, islands and mountains, and far azure headlands, it seems as if surely we must at length reach the very paradise of the poets, the abode of the blessed. Some idea of the wealth of this scenery may be gained from the fact that the coastline of Alaska is about twenty-six thousand miles long, more than twice as long as all the rest of the United States. The islands of the Alexander Archipelago, with the straits, channels, canals, sounds, passages, and fjords form an intricate web of land and water embroidery sixty or seventy miles wide. Fringing the lofty icy chain of coast mountains from Puget Sound to Cook Inlet, and the infinite variety, the general pattern is harmonious throughout its whole extent of nearly a thousand miles. Here you glide into a narrow channel hemmed in by mountain walls, forested down to the water's edge, where there is no distant view, "'and your attention is concentrated on the objects close about you.' "'The crowded spires of the spruces and hemlocks "'rising higher and higher on the steep green slopes. "'Stripes of paler green where winter avalanches "'have cleared away the trees, "'allowing grasses and willows to spring up. "'Zigzags of cascades appearing and disappearing "'among the bushes and trees. "'Short, steep glens with brawling streams "'hidden beneath alder and dogwood, "'seen only where they emerge on the brown algae of the shore.' and retreating hollows, with lingering snow-banks marking the fountains of ancient glaciers. The steamer is often so near the shore that you may distinctly see the cones clustered on the tops of the trees, and the ferns and bushes at their feet. But new scenes are brought to view with magical rapidity. Rounding some bossy cape, the eyes called away into far-reaching vistas, bounded on either hand by headlands in charming array one dipping gracefully beyond another, and growing fainter and more ethereal in the distance. The tranquil channel-stretching river-like between may be stirred here and there by the silvery plashing of upspringing salmon, or by flocks of white gulls floating like water-lilies among the sun-spangles, while mellow, tempered sunshine is streaming over all, blending sky, land, and water in pale misty blue. Then, while you are dreamingly gazing into the depths of this leafy ocean lane, the little steamer, seeming hardly larger than a duck, turning into some passage not visible until the moment of entering it, glides into a wide expanse, a sound filled with islands, sprinkled and clustered in forms and compositions such as nature alone can invent. Some of them, so small, the trees growing on them seem like single handfuls culled from the neighboring woods and sent in the water to keep them fresh while here and there, at wide intervals, you may notice bare rocks just above the water, mere dots punctuating grand, outswelling sentences of islands. The variety we find, both as to the contours and the collocation of the islands, is due chiefly to differences in the structure and composition of their rocks, and the unequal glacial denudation different portions of the coast were subject to. This influence must have been especially heavy toward the end of the glacial period, when the main ice-sheet began to break up into separate glaciers. Moreover, the mountains of the larger islands nourished local glaciers, some of them of considerable size, which sculptured their summits and sides, forming in some cases wide cirques with canyons or valleys leading down from them into the channels and sounds. These causes have produced much of the bewildering variety of which nature is so fond, but none the less will the studious observer see the underlying harmony. The general trend of the islands in the direction of the flow of the main ice mantle from the mountains of the coast range, more or less varied by subordinate foothill ridges and mountains. Furthermore, all the islands, great and small, as well as the headlands and promontories of the mainland, are seen to have a rounded, overrubbed appearance, produced by the oversweeping ice-flood during the period of greatest glacial abundance." The canals, channels, straits, passages, sounds, etc., are subordinate to the same glacial conditions in their forms, trends, and extent as those which determine the forms, trends, and distribution of the land masses, their basins being the parts of the preglacial margin of the continent, eroded to varying depths below sea level, and into which, of course, the ocean waters flowed as the ice was melted out of them. Had the general glacial denudation been much less, these ocean ways over which we are sailing would have been valleys, and canyons, and lakes. And the islands, rounded hills and ridges, landscapes with undulating features, like those found above sea level wherever the rocks and glacial conditions are similar. In general, the island-bound channels are like rivers, not only in separate reaches as seen from the deck of a vessel, but continuously so for hundreds of miles in the case of the longest of them. The tide currents, the fresh driftwood, the inflowing streams, and the luxuriant foliage of the outleaning trees on the shores, make this resemblance all the more complete. The largest islands look like part of the mainland in any view to be had of them from the ship, but far the greater number are small and appreciable as islands, scores of them being less than a mile long. These the eye easily takes in and revels in their beauty with ever-fresh delight. In their relations to each other, the individual members of a group have evidently been derived from the same general rock-mass. Yet they never seem broken or abridged in any way as to their contour lines. However abruptly they may dip their sides. Viewed one by one, they seem detached beauties, like extracts from a poem, while, from the completeness of their lines and the way that their trees are arranged, each seems a finished stanza in itself. Contemplating the arrangement of the trees on these small islands, a distinct impression is produced of their having been sorted and harmonized as to size, like a well-balanced bouquet. On some of the smaller tufted islets, a group of tapering spruces is planted in the middle, and two smaller groups that evidently correspond with each other are planted on the ends at about equal distances from the central group. Or the whole appears as one group with marked fringing trees that match each other spreading around the sides like flowers leaning outward against the rim of a vase. These harmonious tree relations are so constant that they evidently are the result of design, as much so as the arrangement of the feathers of birds or the scales of fishes. Thus perfectly beautiful are these blessed evergreen islands, and their beauty is the beauty of youth, for though the freshness of their verdure must be ascribed to the bland moisture with which they are bathed from warm ocean currents, the very existence of the islands, their features, finish, and peculiar distribution, are all immediately referable to ice action during the great glacial winter just now drawing to a close. We arrived at Wrangell July 14, and after a short stop of a few hours went on to Sitka, and returned on the 20th to Wrangell, the most inhospitable place at first sight I had ever seen. The little steamer that had been my home in the wonderful trip through the archipelago, after taking the mail departed on her return to Portland, and as I watched her gliding out of sight in the dismal blurring rain, I felt strangely lonesome. The friend that had accompanied me thus far now left for his home in San Francisco, with two other interesting travellers who had made the trip for health and scenery, while my fellow passengers, the missionaries, went direct to the Presbyterian home in the old fort. There was nothing like a tavern or lodging-house in the village nor could I find any place in the stumpy, rocky, boggy ground about it that looked dry enough to camp on, until I could find a way into the wilderness to begin my studies. Every place within a mile or two of the town seemed strangely shelterless and inhospitable, for all the trees had long ago been felled for building timber and firewood. At the worst, I thought, I could build a bark hut on a hill back of the village, where something like a forest loomed dimly through the draggled clouds. I had already seen some of the high glacier-bearing mountains in distant views from the steamer, and was anxious to reach them. A few whites of the village, with whom I entered into conversation, warned me that the Indians were a bad lot, not to be trusted, that the woods were well-nigh impenetrable, and that I could go nowhere without a canoe. On the other hand, these natural difficulties made the grand wild country all the more attractive, and I determined to get into the heart of it, somehow or other, with a bag of hardtack, trusting to my usual good luck. My present difficulty was in finding a first base camp. My only hope was on the hill. When I was strolling past the old fort, I happened to meet one of the missionaries, who kindly asked me where I was going to take up my quarters. I don't know, I replied. I have not been able to find quarters of any sort. The top of that little hill over there seems the only possible place. He then explained that every room in the mission house was full, but he thought I might obtain leave to spread my blanket in a carpenter shop belonging to the mission. Thanking him, I ran down to the sloppy wharf for my little bundle of baggage, laid it on the shop floor, and felt glad and snug among the dry, sweet-smelling shavings. The carpenter was at work on a new Presbyterian mission building, and when he came in I explained that Dr. Jackson had suggested that I might be allowed to sleep on the floor, and after I assured him that I would not touch his tools or be in his way, he good-naturedly gave me the freedom of the shop and also of his small private side-room, where I would find a wash-basin. I was here only one night, however, for Mr. Vanderbilt, a merchant who with his family occupied the best house in the fort, hearing that one of the late arrivals, whose business none seemed to know, was compelled to sleep in the carpenter shop, paid me a good Samaritan visit, and after a few explanatory words on my glacier and forest studies, with fine hospitality, offered me a room and a place at his table. Here I found a real home, with freedom to go on all sorts of excursions as opportunity offered. Annie Vanderbilt, a little doctor of divinity two years old, ruled the household with love sermons and kept it warm. Mr. Vanderbilt introduced me to prospectors and traders, and some of the most influential of the Indians. I visited the mission school and the home for Indian girls kept by Mrs. MacFarland, and made short excursions to the nearby forests and streams, and studied the rate of growth of the different species of trees and their age, counting the annual rings on stumps in the large clearings made by the military when the fort was occupied, causing wondering speculation among the Wrangell folk, as was reported by Mr. Vanderbilt. What can the fellow be up to? they inquired. He seems to spend most of his time among stumps and weeds. I saw him the other day on his knees, looking at a stump as if he expected to find gold in it. He seems to have no serious object whatever. One night, when a heavy rainstorm was blowing, I unwittingly caused a lot of wondering and excitement among the whites as well as the superstitious Indians. Being anxious to see how the Alaska trees behave in storms and hear the songs they sing, I stole quietly away through the grey drenching blast to the hill-back of the town, without being observed. Night was falling when I set out, and it was pitch-dark when I reached the top. The glad, rejoicing storm and glorious voice was singing through the woods, noble compensation for mere body discomfort. But I wanted a fire, a big one, to see as well as hear how the storm and trees were behaving, after a long, patient groping, I found a little dry punk in a hollowed trunk, and carefully stored it beside my matchbox, and an inch or two of candle, in an inside pocket that the rain had not yet reached. Then, wiping some dead twigs and whittling them into tiny shavings, stored them with the punk. I then made a little conical bark hut about a foot high, and carefully leaning over it and sheltering it as much as possible from the driving rain, I wiped and stored a lot of dead twigs lighted the candle, and set it in the hut, carefully added pinches of punk and shavings, and at length got a little blaze, by the light of which I gradually added larger shavings. Then twigs all set on end astride the inner flame, making the little hut higher and wider. Soon I had light enough to enable me to select the best dead branches and large sections of bark, which were set on end, gradually increasing the height and corresponding light of the hut fire, a considerable area was thus well lighted, from which I gathered abundance of wood, and kept adding to the fire until it had a strong, hot heart, and sent up a pillar of flame thirty or forty feet high, illuminating a wide circle in spite of the rain, and casting a red glare into the flying clouds. Of all the thousands of campfires I have elsewhere built, none was just like this one. Rejoicing in triumphant strength and beauty in the heart of a rain-laden gale, it was wonderful." The background, the colours, the illumined rain and clouds mingled together, and the trees glowing against the jet background, the colours of the mossy lichen trunks, with sparkling streams pouring down the furrows of the bark, and the grey bearded old patriarchs bowing low and chanting in passionate worship. My fire was in all its glory about midnight, and having made a bark shed and having made a bark shed to shelter me from the rain and partially dry my clothing. I had nothing to do but look and listen, and join the trees in their hymns and prayers. Neither the great white heart of the fire, nor the quivering enthusiastic flames, shooting aloft like auroral lances, could be seen from the village on account of the trees in front of it, and its being back a tattle way over the brow of the hill. But the light in the clouds made a great show, a portentous sign, in the stormy heavens, unlike anything ever before seen or heard of in Wrangell. Some wakeful Indians, happening to see it about midnight, in great alarm, aroused the collector of customs, and begged him to go to the missionaries and get them to pray away the frightful omen, and inquired anxiously whether white men had ever seen anything like that sky-fire, which, instead of being quenched by the rain, was burning brighter and brighter. The collector said he had heard of such strange fires, and this one, he thought, might perhaps be what the white men call a volcano. Or an ignis fatuus. When mister Young was called from his bed to pray, he too, confoundedly astonished and at a loss of any sort of explanation, confessed that he had never seen anything like it, in the sky or anywhere else in such cold wet weather, but that it was probably some sort of spontaneous combustion, that the white men call Saint Elmo's fire, or will o' the wisp. These explanations, though not convincingly clear, perhaps served to veil their own astonishment, and in some measure to diminish the superstitious fears of the natives. But from what I heard, the few whites who happened to see the strange light wandered about as wildly as the Indians. I have enjoyed thousands of campfires in all sorts of weather and places, warm-hearted, short-flamed, friendly little beauties glowing in the dark on open spots in high Sierra gardens, daisies and lilies circled about them, gazing like enchanted children, and large fires in silver fir-forests, with spires of flame towering like the trees about them, and sending up multitudes of starry sparks to enrich the sky, and still greater fires on the mountains in winter, changing camp climate to summer, and making the frosty snow look like beds of white flowers, and oftentimes mingling their swarms of swift-flying sparks with falling snow-crystals when the clouds were in bloom. But this Wrangell campfire, my first in Alaska, I shall always remember for its triumphant, storm defying grandeur, and the wondrous beauty of the psalm singing, lichen painted trees which it brought to light. End of chapter two. Recording by John Dennison, South Portland, Maine.